Hey, Rockheads, if you couldn't make it to London this year for NSBCon, the very first conference all about in-service bus, we got some good news. NSBCon's coming to New York City September 29th and 30th. Two full days of sessions on distributed systems development from top speakers like Udi Dahan, Oranini, Ted Neward, and .NET Rocks is going to be there too. Not only that, but we're extending the deadline. Register before August 31st and get two days of video from Udi Dahan's course free. These videos will teach you about messaging patterns, where and when to use buses and brokers, and the right way to go about service-oriented architecture. These videos usually cost over $1,000, but we oh-so-gently twisted Udi's arm so you, our loyal listeners, can get access to the very best, but only if you register before August 31st. So join Richard and me in NSBCon and take your development skills to a whole new level. Go to nsbconnyc.com and register today. .NET Rocks, episode 1023, with guests Julie Lerman and Steve Smith. Recorded Monday, August 18th, 2014. And we're back. It's .NET Rocks again. Richard, what's up, my friend? Well, I'm freshly back from that conference, and I'm beginning to believe that I shouldn't go to conferences without you. Yeah, you said that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, because normally when we're together at a conference, we're recording so many shows. Right, we're working. Yeah, we work nonstop. When I I have time to spare, uh, I can get a little out of control. Uh Uh-oh. Oh, Oh, you know, a funny thing happened at that conference. I was able to go to lunch uh, with the attendees, and every lunch we talked about Fusion. Wow. The geek outs. So I ended up doing a a Fusion Power open space. No kidding. On, on the last day. Yeah, about a dozen people there. And uh, we debated vociferously. Did you get some new information or any good ideas? Yeah, it was a bunch of, it was really, you know what was funny? Uh, thinking back to the second uh, Fusion Power show, just explaining magnetized targeted fusion. The mm-hmm. spinning of the lead inside of the sphere. Yeah. They had exactly the same reaction you had. What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. They're doing what? They're like, doing no, really, what? With really what? They are. Yeah. Uh, I got a little bit of news. I'm almost to my $7,500 limit on Kickstarter, and I would like to thank both Julie and Steve for contributing to that. Nice. And they're coming up in just a few minutes here. But, uh, yeah, I'm almost there. Uh, if you want to check it out, Google Music to Code By or go to kickstarter.com and look for Music to Code By. It's basically 80 minutes of long-running music to help you get in the flow, in the zone. What style of music are we going to be doing? Well, you know, everybody's curious about that. Yeah. And uh, I'm pretty much relying on my right brain to kind of recreate the, the state of mind that I'm, that I'm in when I'm developing it's going to be different than probably anything else that you've heard. It's not going to be new age and it's not going to be so repetitive that you, that it gets in your brain and sticks and doesn't come out. Yeah. You don't want an earworm. Yeah. But it will have good grooves. Like it's going to feel good. You know what I mean? Sure. But it will be something that you can put on in the background and it will, it won't uh, grab your attention, 
but it, and it won't annoy you either. And it'll just gradually get you into a state of flow and keep you there. Nice. So I'm thinking of, you know, slow changing grooves over time that sort of morph into each other to match your mental state. So there you go. I'm looking forward to it. It'll be cool. Music, music to code by. And uh, Better Know Framework is next. Amy. Let's run that music. All right, buddy. What do you got? Well, uh, I don't know if Steve or Julie has seen this article. Maybe they have. Maybe they've written stuff that's even better than it. But I found a great uh, introduction to domain-driven design on the Code Project website. So if you go to tinyurl.com slash intro, this is a great article on DDD by, uh, and sorry if I'm mispronouncing your name, but it's Andre Boudet from February 2010. I liked it, and I, I saw a bunch of them that were, you know, sort of introductory articles. This one was my favorite, just because it's well-written, easy to understand, and the analogies are great. And he doesn't spend... He doesn't hit you over the head with a lot of technical stuff right off the bat. It's all, it's very conceptual. Then he gets into the implementation, and uh, I thought it was great. Awesome. And it's well-rated, too, on Code Project. That's good. So check that out. This might be good, uh, good fodder for uh, this conversation and beyond. Who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 996, and that's the one we did with Doc Norton. When we were at NDC, when we were talking about Agile Metrics. We got so many good shows there, didn't we? We got a real, that was one of those awesome runs of yeah. just one. And, and the funny part is, while it's exhausting to do a lot of shows back to back, when they were so great, we were kind of jazzed mm. at the end of each one of them. And yeah, it's, I should really look at the order that we recorded them and see if you can tell in our voices yeah. where we were in the stack in any given day. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, yeah, Agile Metrics, just talking about this whole trap of measuring one thing. And Tony Reynolds had some great comments on there. He started off by quoting you, sir, mm -hmm. when you said, only a Sith speaks in absolutes. Oh, yeah, that was a creepy kind of comment that I said because we were wearing headphones. Yeah. And uh, ear earphones, and nobody could hear that I said that except for me. <laughs> so I but said it under my breath. And I remember Doc looking over at me like, did you just say something? But then he just kind of went on and ignored it. And I and my wife, who um, listens to all the shows for continuity and for mistakes and all that, she said, I'm not sure if this is supposed to be in there. <laughs> <laughs> well, the there's a few comments that people say they were a little creeped out by yeah, that line. a little creepy because I said it under my breath. You know? <laughs> Yeah. Uh, Tony goes on to say, I enjoy the focus on agile metrics that matter, how to use them to get what you want out of measurement, and that one must be prepared to cope with resulting changes, mm -hmm. both expected and unexpected. Mm -hmm. I especially like the parts about picking a single evaluation metric that will get people to focus on that to the exclusion and to the detriment of all the others. Yep. Just before I listened to this show, I've been thinking about helping my coworkers to pick a set of metrics. Maybe we'll have one metric on quality and one on completion and one on technical debt. Moving one up will affect the others, and hopefully we'll find a spot or space, maybe an intersection in the Venn diagram, that allows us to operate like we dream, only to revisit the metrics later. Mm. Happy to hear some backup from you and Doc. Thank you. Yeah. Um, totally with you, dude. Like, And I don't know that there's any one set of metrics, and I don't think that we should be dictating it anyway. You know, the whole point about measurement is you have to have agreement by the measured. 
You know, yeah, less folks sure. are actually on board with what's being measured, why it's being measured, how it's accurate, and why it's relevant. There's no point in measuring it anyway. So right. it, you can't just dictate those measurements. You have to get agreement and talk through them and decide what makes sense to you and revisit them regularly. That's right. So, Tony, thanks so much for your comment. Donnet Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a Donnet Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at donnetrocks.com or on any of our mobile apps. We've got them for Android, iOS, Windows Phone 7 and 8, and Windows 8. And let me introduce our guests. They've both been on .NET Rocks several times. Julie Lerman. Julie presents on entity framework, domain-driven design, and other topics at user groups and conferences around the world. She blogs at thedatafarm.com slash blog, is the author of the highly acclaimed programming entity framework books, the MSDN magazine data points column, and popular software training videos on Pluralsight.com. Follow Julie on Twitter at Julie Lerman. Welcome, Julie. Hey there. Steve Smith is an entrepreneur and software developer with a passion for building quality software as effectively as possible. He's currently the chief technology officer at Falafel Software. Steve has published several courses on Pluralsight covering DDD, solid design patterns, and software architecture. He's a Microsoft regional director and MVP, a frequent speaker at developer conferences, an author, and a trainer. Along with his wife and business partner, Michelle Smith, Steve was also the founder of Lake Quincy Media, acquired by The Code Project, and Nimble Pros, acquired by Telerik. Steve's an ex-Army engineer officer and Iraq veteran who enjoys playing games and spending time outdoors. Welcome, Steve. Hey, Carl. Glad to be back. Glad to have you both back. So this is um, an interesting combination of, of uh, you know, it's sort of inevitable, Richard, that these two would have gotten together at some time. Don't you think? Well, they're friends. That's a start. Yeah. But I mean, just, you know, Julie's <laughs> such a, a data person and Steve, um, the first, the first uh, thing that I learned about you was you really knew how to tweak SQL Server so that it could, uh, so that it could scale with just a simple trick. And, uh, so it's kind of inevitable that you guys would work together someday. I think it's great. Yeah. Yeah, but, but on a completely different focused yeah. topic. Yeah, DDD. But we've both been evolving that way. Steve's been done so much stuff on software craftsmanship. My, my deep knowledge of SQL Server is that uh, the fastest queries run when they don't hit the database. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that point was greatly illustrated. Yeah, Steve and I did a joint performance session, I don't know, it was a few years ago now. Where we, I think we just told war stories the whole time. Yeah, that was great. At DevReach a few years ago? Yeah. And, you know, those are some of my favorite sessions, too, because you don't get experience from people just giving PowerPoint uh, lectures. Those stories are great. Hey, where do we start with DDD? And why why isn't this more popular? Why haven't we had more shows on it? And, you know, why aren't people talking more about it? Or are they? And we're just ignoring them. That's actually why we decided to do this work together, which we did a course on Pluralsight on domain-driven design. Um, and a lot of that was, well, first of all, Pluralsight had been getting a lot of requests for it. Um, but the, the other was conversations with some of the DDD experts, like, like Eric Evans saying, asking the same question, you know, why aren't more people using this? It's been around for 10 years. The people who get it really why love it. Why is it just development? But, right. So why, why? Why can you answer I, the question? I think I think that some of the books that are available, while excellent, uh, are 
they're, they take a little bit of effort to really internalize and, and to apply. And it's also similar to, to Agile itself and TDD. Uh, domain-driven design is, is, to me, just an extension of doing software development using the principles from, from Agile. And it leads you toward writing high-quality, maintainable code. Uh, but there's a lot more uh, in terms of the things you have to know about in domain-driven design than just to say, oh, we do Scrum, so we're Agile, right? Right. And, and it goes beyond the coding, too. So people are so focused on keeping up with coding styles, whether it's you know languages or platforms or things like that. DDD is bigger than that. that it's really uh, about the full process from you know working with clients to to getting something out it's as much about the process as it is the the sort of the architecture because there is a definite code architecture to ddd is there not definitely um i still see in in most organizations a tendency toward using the database as the source of all integration between applications and also writing all the software such that it's totally dependent and coupled to the database and so I call that sort of a data-driven architecture. And domain-driven design, as the name implies, is all domain-driven. It's it's all about your model and, and the core part of your application. And the database is just someplace you stick state. It's not the core of the application. Okay. Yeah, and and taking taking that perspective while you're working out the software and the logic of your software, you don't have to worry about all those problems of persisting the software there you still have to worry about them at some point but they're disconnected from the problem that you're trying to solve which is not about database persistence that's uh, that's just separate so is the goal to have a, this domain layer that's completely agnostic about data and completely agnostic about applications and completely agnostic about user interface that it just sort of describes what the functionality of your system does? Yes. At an architectural level, um, domain-driven design uh, likes to use the architectural pattern called onion architecture, uh -huh. which is also known as ports and adapters, and it's also known as hexagonal or hexagonal, I'm not sure which, architecture. And the, the whole intent of all of those uh, is to have a, a core library or assembly that has no dependencies on anything else except your your framework. So this core is then you know very easy for you to change because it's not locked into uh, your database schema, for instance. And instead, your user interface, your data layer, those things depend on this core instead of the other way around. I get it. It's like separation of concerns to the max. Yeah. And uh, can you give us just a simple example of um, something that would fit well in this model that uh, is easy to explain? You mean the architecture? Mm -hmm. Sure. So if you take uh, your your kind of hello world ASP.NET page, or or for instance the the starting sample that you get if you grab the MVC five uh, starting sample that has an MVC movie sample app, yeah. and you could probably add a link from your show. What it does is show a list of movies. And the way it does that is right in the controller, it news up a DB context and then executes queries against it. Now, if you want to write a test against this, the only way you can test that it does the right thing, and, and there is some logic in it that, you know, based on if they put in a filter, it'll only return certain movies. So if you want to test that that part works correctly with a unit test, there's no easy way to do it because it's tightly coupled to the database. Right. And 
that's typical of most data-driven architectures. There's no easy way to test it unless you've got a test database. And testing with a test database is brittle, it's slow, it's, and it it's breaks not your data. all the time. Right, and it's not even the real data, you hope, right? I mean, right. if you run your tests against the production database, that has its own problems. But the the way you fix that is you apply this dependency injection pattern uh, or the dependency inversion principle, mm -hmm. and you make it so that instead of having this direct coupling to a new DB context, you you pass in an interface, and, and then you're able to test that interface with, with a mock or a fake in your unit test. But at production you pass in a, a an actual entity framework DB context. Right. Because you really are testing the code and the logic. You're not testing the data at this point. Correct. You want to just test... Right. Go the, ahead, Julie. The code doesn't, uh, the code doesn't really care where the data is coming yeah. from. But the, you know, and another point to make about that explanation with respect to domain-driven design is... If you even look at the subtitle of Eric Evans' Domain-Driven Design book, it's about solving complex problems. So there's a lot of software that we write where we're just doing CRUD. And so it doesn't, you know, there's a, it's easy to start getting into overkill, yeah. right, of, of applying some of these patterns. Sure. Uh, but on the other hand, there's still a lot to be learned from the pattern. So while you might say, well, this is just crud and I don't really need to go, you know, the whole nine yards without using all that DDD stuff, there might be lessons from domain driven design that you can still take advantage of without really overdoing the architecture on something that's really simple. And as a matter of fact, that's really how I started learning about DDD because I also looked at it and went, oh my God, you know, like it's, it's a really big thing. Um, a lot of times what people do is they get partway through the book and they're overwhelmed yeah. and they stop. And so they try to apply DDD, but they haven't really learned yeah. the full thing. So sometimes they might have failure, you know, it might not really succeed at, at doing that. But on the other hand, if you you know, I really took bits and pieces from and said, hey, there's something I can really take advantage of. The first thing I really glommed onto was this idea of the bounded context, because even though that bounded context from DDD is uh, more a concept, it really isn't the same as a DB context in Entity Framework. I was able to kind of apply some of those ideas and instead of having this huge model saying, oh, I can, you know, really have boundaries mm. around these models. And so I started learning, learn, you know, leveraging bit by bit some of those things and then learning more and more and more and more and taking advantage of it at a bigger level. And, you know, the age old problems of complexity come up to bite you, don't they? I mean, you get, you get an app that's very, uh, if it's tightly coupled, it's very complex and you can't really rip stuff out to reuse it that easily um so all or change yeah. it also yeah. you know try to get another developer working on it and yeah good luck with that yeah a lot of it is about just making sure there are seams between the different parts of your application mm. you know that separation of concerns and that modularity lets you break apart the application test individual pieces or change individual pieces without worrying that it's going to break things in parts of the application that you didn't think you were even touching. But this is just about, you know, good decoupling all around. What makes it domain-driven? 
oh, the, the real focus on the problem that you're trying to solve of the business domain, as opposed to s- starting with a problem of, I need to get some data from here to there, right? That's not really what the problem is about. The problem is the business. Something that you talk about a lot when you're doing domain-driven design is the model and modeling the problem that your application is trying to solve. And the way you create a useful model is by having conversations with the customer, with the business expert. It comes down to the model, and you want to try and model in your system how the application should work, which might be how it works in the real world, or it might be how you're optimizing it to work in your software. All right. So really curious now as to what this uh, what this domain layer would have in it uh, from a technology point of view or what kinds of methods it would have and how, uh, how that would interact with the rest of it. That's where my mind is going now. Yeah. So in our course on Pluralsight, we touch on, you know, pretty much just at a high level, all the, the key parts of domain-driven design. And, and what you're talking about, I think the, the most key elements at a code level are entities, which are classes in your model that have some sort of identity, mm-hmm. value objects, which are classes in your model that are interchangeable. And typically, you'll create these such that they're immutable. Okay. And then you might also have services and domain events and most likely repositories. Mm -hmm. Julie, what would you add? Another important aspect of putting this together is that the entities go together in something that's called an aggregate, and you have an aggregate root. So uh, almost the easiest way for me to uh, interpret that like from a database-driven design perspective is kind of parent-child relationships, Mm. right? We have those frequently through our applications. But it's, it's not just parent child. What it is is the, the root that would be the parent is really responsible for all of what's happening with its relationship. So it is kind of the master of the rules, knowing what the rules are and making sure those rules are adhered to. Mm. And factories, the factory pattern comes into play quite a bit in DDD, doesn't it? Yes, it can. If you, if you need something to, to create, for instance, an aggregate for you with, with a, an object and all of its children and, and potentially its children's children, um, it's not unusual to, to use a factory to produce one of those for you. Right. Because you have a lot of different variations in how those can be created. Yeah. And actually one of, also one of the reasons that the factory is an important pattern here is when you have this aggregate and the root, which is in charge of, really everything that should be happening with it and all of its quote-unquote children. Um, what you don't want to do is expose all of your values for anybody to just randomly change, right? So you, you're not going to have just getters and setters everywhere. You really want to have tight control over what can be retrieved and, and what values can be mm-hmm. changed. So by encapsulating methods that allow that to happen, then you can have more control over what happens in that aggregate route. And the factory pattern is one of those ways to encapsulate the instantiation of something to make sure that it's instantiated in the proper way. So you don't 
just, you know, say, okay, uh, var cust equals new customer and then cust dot name is this and cust dot this is that. You would, um, have a factory pattern that would enforce how it was created. I, I call the whole thing ADD DD, <laughs> ADD, ADD driven development, right? Because it's just really makes you really think about things in an almost very, uh, anal right. way, right? Like, we know but it works mean. for me. Yeah. No, I, it works for no, me. But yeah. in that factory pattern, you would be passing all those parameters as part of the create process. Yeah, yeah. Right. It would it would make sure that you're giving it everything that defines the customer. Like it isn't a customer without, you know, unless you have this, 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 and right. that defined. So what's the point of letting you just say var new customer, mm -hmm. you know, because now that's not really a customer. Mm -hmm. So what's the point of it? Yeah. So you can have really tight control over how that's created. Right. The best practice, not just in DDD, is to make your software behave in such a way that it's not possible to have objects that are in an invalid state. Make it so that when you create them, you can't get one unless you give it everything it needs to be valid. Right. Yeah. Seems like common sense. The, where's there? It's so much of it is common sense, yeah. Carl. The, is there any overlap with behavior-driven design? Because, you know, that's, uh, that also seems like common sense. And uh, see, I'm seeing a little overlap here. You you could probably say there is some. I mean, definitely they rhyme, right? You've got BDD and DDD, <laughs> but a TDD. Yeah. Um, other than that, though, I think you know BDD is is more of a just an approach to how you build out the features of your application. Uh, DDD is is a little deeper and richer than that, and focuses a lot on having conversations with the customer and and more internal uh, aspects of the application. That BDD doesn't really care how you build it. You can BDD a data-driven app, no sure. problem. Um, DDD cares more about how it's structured internally. Yeah, it's more about the architecture and the in the domain, as you say. Now, um, of course, when you do go to build these things out, you can use BDD techniques, of course, right? Right. Certainly. Yeah. And TDD, and of course. Yeah, they all go hand in hand nicely. Yeah, if you weren't using TDD with BDD and DDD, you'd be <laughs> SOL PDQ. I think. Oh, jeez! Come on, Carl. Come on I want to hear the song. Where's the he song? Knew it was coming. <laughs> it's coming. Hey, this is a good time to talk about coder camps. Coder camps is changing the way people learn .NET and JavaScript. If you've been learning .NET on your own, these guys can get you the skills that you need to get hired in just nine weeks. They've been around for over a year now, and the results are just amazing. Everyone who's graduated has been hired within 90 days, and now they've made it even better by letting students attend camp online. Check them out at CoderCamps.com. Uh, sorry for that interruption, guys. Just had to pay the bills. Where were we? No problem. I've got one more DD for you, which is uh, PDD, which is, stands for Pain Driven Development. Yeah! Night. And I talk about this in in my user group and conference talks when I'm describing, you know, patterns and, and things like domain-driven design, right? you don't have to use all the patterns or all the techniques that, that you know about, right? You just apply the ones that fix the pain that you're experiencing right now with your application. So you think you can actually retrofit a DDD approach into an existing app? Oh, sure. That's what refactoring is all about. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and I've got, yeah, by refactoring. you know, plug my course, I've got a course on refactoring at Pluralsight as well, but... <laughs> Um, you can certainly improve the design of existing software through refactoring. And, this and show's got more plugs than Nicholas Cage. 
<laughs> oh. <sighs> Ouch. Sorry, didn't mean to derail it. I thought it was funny. I did too. <laughs> but I, I totally to your point is the the real thought here is how much of this is about a work style or a process versus the differences in your code. I think it's a combination because it really the work style and the process is the more important piece but then understanding how to actually implement it is is equally important although you know on a larger team there would be some people who are focused and better at one piece of it than another but you know we talked to Eric Evans Eric Evans talked to us um for the course he actually helped out by letting us interview him while we were creating the course and ask some questions and we've got you know, we have these conversations in there. And one of the things he talked about, one of the problems he sees is when people don't happen to have the technical chops to implement the stuff in code. So it is, you know, they really are equally important, I think. Yeah, I mean, implementing a factory well is not a trivial exercise. No, I think that's where the PDD comes in, right? <laughs> Right, exactly. Yeah, the problem is that some pain, pain responses is don't do factories. Hurts yeah, when I do well, that. I, you know, uh, go ahead. Sorry. Just a joke. Hurts when I do that. Don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> no, and that's part of why, I mean, as developers, we need to learn enough of these patterns and processes and techniques so that we uh, eventually get to the point where we're comfortable with them and we know when to use them and when not. You know, the old saying that if the only tool you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, that applies to software totally as well. So you want to at least learn enough about DDD and design patterns and, and testing and these different areas of software development so that you know when it's appropriate and when it isn't to apply these different things. And I think also to trust yourself to recognize code smells too, like where something just doesn't feel right and, and say, you know, that doesn't feel right. And I trust my instinct on that. Let's, you know, see if I can make that fit together better. And, and usually again with refactoring, um, you know, it, you know, when it feels right, right? When you have that, like, uh, it just isn't, isn't the way I want it to be. You don't know what it is that you're trying to achieve sometimes or what would make it better, but refactoring and refactoring and refactoring sometimes, you know, you get to that place where it just feels right. And also making those decisions about when to go to that effort or not, when to, you know, kind of make that investment if it's worth it or not. And that's really hard, I think, for developers because, you know, given all the time in the world, it would be, it's always nice to make things as beautiful as we can. Yeah, I guess the question is, are we actually going faster when we're applying DDD techniques? Right. And the, the challenge there is you've got to recognize when it makes sense because DDD does have overhead. Right. You need to make sure that the problem that you're solving merits the overhead that DDD brings to the table. And if you are simply trying to give the user a way to edit a table in SQL, you know, just throw a grid on a page and let them have at it. But if mm -hmm. you've got some complex logic and things need to happen, you know, when, when X happens, then Y also needs to happen, you know, things like that, uh, with enough complexity, you'll, you'll get back the return on your investment in DDD fairly quickly. 
Well, and it, it, this is another one of those things where it feels like I'm real, but if it's going to come in version two and version three, you know, the, sure. The, the, getting that first and version understanding, of the app, not the big yeah. Deal. Sure, that's often the case, right? I mean, software eighty percent or more of its expense comes after the first version is shipped, and it's in quote maintenance mode, right? I mean, like the healthcare website. <laughs> <laughs> oh my. Well, yeah, that was an yeah. interesting optimization <laughs> battle. Now, wasn't it? Sure was. And and do we want to conjoin that? I mean, is that really the same thing? I've always been a person who's looked at performance tuning as something you really can't do in advance. You know, you have to see where the pain points are to really be able to tune. The question is, how quickly can you do it? How tolerant is your software to modification? Right. You want to avoid premature optimization. And you don't want to do performance tuning unless you've got some test that tells you whether or not it's fast enough. Because otherwise, you don't know when to stop tuning. Mm -hmm. That being said, was anybody surprised that this site was going to be really busy? No. Well, they shouldn't have been. (laughs) Well, and and, I mean, I certainly didn't work on it. I don't want to project anything. But clearly, there was conversations about there were folks who knew there were going to be problems. But the politics of a of an application that big uh, impaired its ability to actually be optimized the way it needed to be. Sure, and and a lot of what DDD uh, and TDD and a lot of these other agile approaches brings to the table is the fact that your code can be changed quickly when it needs to be. I mean, we're writing software. The whole idea of it being soft is that it's malleable and changeable. Nice. But how many systems have we worked on that are five years old and they're just a, a huge ball of mud of spaghetti code mess that nobody's you know got enough courage to touch anything because it'll break something else? Right. Yeah, I, I, you call them brittle, right? Exactly. Not malleable. They, you touch one thing and everything shatters. Richard, I'm waiting for you to say, sounds like a girl I once knew. I was going to go there. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Richard, you know what time it is? It must be that happy time again. Yep. Time to refactor this show by creating a giveaway with SJDD. SJDD? Guess what that means. Um... Stupid joke-driven design. (laughs) Well, that's very clever. I thought so. (laughs) Obviously not as funny as you thought it was. But anyway, uh, it's time actually to give away a Sync Fusion Essential Studio package to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But before I announce the winner, say goodbye to boring enterprise apps. Sync Fusion Essential Studio offers more than 500 controls to help you build stunning applications. Just released an amazing set of ASP.NET controls 100% powered by JavaScript. Download a free trial at SyncFusion.com today. They've also published over 40 completely free ebooks on topics ranging from Hadoop to assembly. Each book written by a leading expert contains 100 pages of wholesome technical content with absolutely no promotional material. Head to SyncFusion.com slash ebooks to get your copy now. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Andrew Bush. Congratulations, Andrew. Golf clap for you, sir. You just won the Sync Fusion Essential Studio. That's a big pile of awesome from Sync Fusion. Hey, if you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. Every show, we give away great stuff from our sponsors, and every December, we give away $5,000 to one lucky member of the fan club, but you got to join to win. And we like to ask our guests, Steve, Julie... If you had $5,000 to spend on technology right now, what would you buy? Julie? 
Oh, you know I've prepared for this after the last time you asked me. <laughs> I'm going to get a 3D printer. Yay! Yeah. Did you have one there's in mind? There's actually... Well, you know, there's actually a 3D printing business now yep. in downtown Burlington. Oh, no, there's a few of I'm them sure there's... I think that's very there's cool. There's a few of them yeah. shooting up. There's places... Uh, yeah. You said which one? Well, the $5,000 one. Oh, wait, no, no. I've got to leave some budget left for the stuff with which That's you print, right? right? Yeah. Yeah. Materials. I do like the idea that the 3D printer is coming into the same role as like the inkjet printer did. You wouldn't print a book on your inkjet printer, but you might do the prototype there and experiment with it. When you were ready to, when you had it exactly the way you wanted, you send it to a print shop. Yeah. And I think 3D printers, same way. You'll prototype on your little 3D printer at home. And when you're ready for the real thing, you'll send it to an additive manufacturing shop. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really cool that these uh, little Kinko's type uh, shops are, are popping up where you can, you know, just go make stuff. They have designers yeah, I and think they have Staples printers. has been doing it too for a while. Staples has been doing 3D printing? That's cool. Y- yeah, yeah, they've been doing it for a while. So you know, I was re- I'm ready for the 3D printer because the last time we talked I, you know, wanted to just upgrade my office, but I've already done all that. Mm. Okay. So yeah, now I'm ready for Steve, it. Steve, what about you? I think I would probably try and get a uh, a nice quadcopter with a decent camera that I could fly around over my house and kind of oh, yeah. check cool. things out there. Uh, and then if I had any money left over, I'd put it toward a Tesla Model S because I think that's the ultimate geek vehicle at the moment. You think Darwin would chase the quadcopter? Left over from 5,000? Darwin, my poodle, yeah. He yeah would, a little over 5,000. He would probably have fun chasing it, yeah. Yeah. He's quite but, an energetic dog. <laughs> Well, and I told you what happened when I flew a helicopter in my house. No, what happened? I got the little little remote control helicopter, like you know, not much bigger than your hand. Yeah, yeah. You know, just a you know a toy, right? And, I, and they you know they come in the package, not quite assembled. So I got to put a few bits on, stick the battery pack, da 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 da, get it all set up, power it up, spin. You know, rotor gets rotating. I lift it off of the service counter where I'm working. It comes, I pull it off. The dog jumps up, pow. <laughs> shreds it and then looks at me like got him boss Next. <laughs> yeah well you know that's the bear killer what do you yeah. want zach did his job little pieces of plastic and i put that remote down and like i can't have a helicopter nope <laughs> hey dad this bug tastes really weird yeah that was a funny one but you know he doesn't eat these things he just kills them yeah. and he killed it oh man the dog and the helicopter do not mix no well, mixed briefly. Helicopter lost. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let me jump back in here by talking about uh, or asking you to talk about the anti-corruption layer. What the heck is that? What does anti-corruption mean in, in DDD? In our course, we've got a representation of the anti-corruption layer, which is uh, a slew of big comic book characters, comic book heroes to protect your bounded contexts from each other. Mm. Essentially, an anti-corruption layer gives you the ability to have these sep- totally bounded applications, so to speak. They wouldn't don't necessarily need to be applications, but a bounded context where you're really encapsulating one problem set and, and having its own model and everything is really bounded in there. Because you, it's kind of complete in a way. But then it's not always complete because you might need to get some information from one place to another. 
and the anti-corruption layer, which for some reason I've always, Steve remembers while we were doing the course, I would always just forget that term. I was like, what's that thing again? What's that thing called <laughs> yeah, again? Yeah, it's not really all that the, descriptive, is it, of what it does? Yeah, well, actually, when you understand it, it does, it does make sense because what it does is it's some way, and there's a number of different ways, whether it's a service or, you know, some other way of getting, uh, of being able to kind of share some important information from one context to another or one context to another application. And what it does is it makes sure, first of all, that those two contexts or applications don't need to know anything about each other. Right. So you're not, you don't have to kind of corrupt one with logic or information from the other. And I don't mean data no. from the other, but a way of interpreting the data, a way of handling the data. Rules. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, okay. Rules. Um, and, um, also you might do some work in that anti-corruption layer to make sure that, you know, that maybe the data is coming from one place or a message is coming from one place, but when it gets, it needs to look a different way before it gets to the other place for the other place to understand it, right? So you don't want the other context to have to interpret it, right? Let's, let's send it to the second context in a way that is completely comprehensible to so, that, that fits right into its model. So the anti-corruption layer, you can do that kind of, you know, take take it from here. It's coming from here. It has to go to there. So, you know, maybe like transform it into a DTO or something so like a, that. So it's an known abstraction layer that provides adapters, basically, for... That's a great way to explain it. And there's, there's, there's different ways. I mean, you can use uh, message mm. queue as... As an anti-corruption sure. layer, or a service as an anti-corruption layer. Wow, it's just about creating really clean boundaries, right? Yeah. Yes, and that's one of the key key things in domain-driven design is this bounded context. So you really yeah. don't want system A talking to system B directly. They have to go through this interpreter, shall we say? Exactly. Right, because then system A has to understand things about system right. B that it would not otherwise have any reason to know oh, that makes perfect sense yeah so you're not corrupting well i mean if there's any corruption it's going to be in your anti-corruption layer isn't it <laughs> is that weird? Yeah. and it can handle yeah. it it's got balls of steel <laughs> i didn't say that samson you didn't say balls of steel <laughs> no no that was michelle michelle said it <laughs> yeah steel balls you know, we used to shoot them on the playground. Nice. All right. Yeah, the whole the whole point of the anti-corruption layer, the corruption it's talking about is corruption to your model. Yeah. And so, for instance, let's say you've got an application that the model is all about movies. And you happen to be using Netflix's uh, public API, if they have one, uh, to get information about movies. And maybe Netflix has a different way of referring to things than you do. Right. Maybe you've got rating and rating talks about users voting for how they like the movie. And Netflix thinks the rating is rated R, rated PG, whatever. You don't want their rating to become something in your model that changes the meaning of rating in your model. So the anti-corruption layer would be responsible for translating a foreign model into something that makes sense in your application's model. Do you find when you're putting together models like this that it's all about the glossary, like just getting people to agree on terms? Oh, yes. Yeah. There's actually 
another important concept in DDD, and it's called the ubiquitous language. And that's exactly what it is, making sure, first of all, that everybody's who's discussing things within one context are in sync on when somebody says something, everybody knows what they mean. Mm. But also you can use that ubiquitous language throughout the process, whether you're talking about the model or you're talking to a domain expert or you're naming a method in a class. So it's consistent all the way through right. and understood. And I think it's part of the overhead of getting good with, you know, what's the difference, you know, well, if, functioning team and a weak team is when everybody's actually on the same page for the glossary for for terms you can go a lot faster otherwise there's a whole lot of going back and forth trying to get the terms right yep. or agree that we mean the same thing definitely and that needs to be not just the team but also the customer and everybody else involved in the application so it's important not to use terms that are so focused like you know programming terms mm -hmm. Right. Or talking over anybody's head. Just actually. And it, it's a, um, as a matter of respecting everybody who's everybody on the team, you know, sometimes it's an, it's an agreed upon common language. Right. So do your method names actually end up being very generic, like, you know, search movie store or something like that in your, in your domain? Not necessarily, because there's a part of the implementation that the client's never going to see mm -hmm. anyway, mm -hmm. but maybe high-level stuff, especially, you know, when you come into some of the BDD, right? If you're using BDD, some right. of that also helps. And whether you call it a movie or a film or, or whatever it is you're going to refer to it as, you know, that should be consistent and, and not change anywhere in your whole application. It should never be a case where the same thing is called by two different names in right. your system. Should you be able to um, print out your domain code and a business person should be able to understand it, at least from the names of the methods and what you're passing around? Is for the most part. Yeah, for the most part, I think so. They should at least be able to recognize what the entities and the value objects are and yeah. understand that those are, are parts of their system. And then the methods should be pretty obvious too. In our particular example that we used for our course, we used a veterinary clinic scheduling application. And so we have things like a schedule and appointment. Uh, and if you talk to a veterinarian or, or staff member about that, they would understand what those things meant. Right. And the key is that you asked about printing out the domain code. Right. Right. Not all of the application right. code because. And the so it right. seems to me that this is just a, a you know, if I was going to use like CSLA.net, this would be the business object. I mean, everything else is completely abstract. And, you know, this is just pure logic. Is that. Yes. Yeah. Does that map? Does that idea map to like Rocky's business objects? Well, doesn't I not used his, but doesn't doesn't CSLA tight like tightly couple the objects to how they're how they get their data no am i wrong no, about no. that he he does a, a very nice okay. abstraction this way sorry about that rocky <laughs> yeah i haven't used it either and it's been a few years since i've even looked at it but definitely the but, idea that you yeah. just said that that these are just the code and just the business objects that is correct that that is what the domain layer and the domain model are meant to be in DDD. Right. It's just pure logic. So so a business person could say, oh, well, I see the bug right there. You're you're adding one where you should be adding 10 or whatever. And, you know, and they're not dealing with 
the in, in you know they're not dealing with UI, they're not dealing with data, they're not dealing with any of that. They're just pure logic, right? And even things like you know taking uh, we did this in in our sample application. We created a value object that was a date time a date range, right? And all those calculations of like how to get yesterday, mm-hmm. like you know is it is is it one day? What's what's today? And that you know all those issues you have to deal with with. Uh, searching for dates when, you know, is it a.m. or is it midnight? You know, where are we calculating from? Right. So all the nonsense of that is encapsulated in a value object. So uh, if you were going to give the domain code to the client, they wouldn't have to see that. They would just see something that's like, you know, today's appointments, period. And they don't have to worry about how we're getting at that. It's just today's appointments. That's what they know. Because if they looked at the underlying code, you, you know, in order to get a range of one day, you actually have to go from you know that day to the next day. If mm-hmm. you're thinking of midnight for each day, so you know you have like here's the schedule for June first to June second, and the business <laughs> user is going to look at that and say, well, I only wanted one day, I didn't want to. And then you have to explain, well, it's from midnight on June first until midnight on June second, which is actually the very first instant of June second. So you won't see any appointments from June second, and it just saves all of that, you know conversation that you didn't have to have Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then we have a nice clean little value object that we can reuse all over the place and we don't have to worry about that problem anymore instead of always having start date end date start date end date in you know in every one of our classes that have some kind of date range just common sense to me right and and that's an example really is if you do have like a start date and an end date always floating around together on a bunch of your objects that's a, a a code smell called data clumps. Yep. Where those two things are related, they should have their own concept, their own object to encapsulate them. Yeah. I love that term though, data clumps. I never yep. I never heard that before. That's a <laughs> I think you just made it up. That sounds like uh Steveism. No, no, it's in my uh, refactoring course. Okay. Obviously you guys haven't watched it. No, nope, haven't. I don't know. I, I I'm looking at I'm looking at the dog and wondering if he has anything to do with data clumps. Oh, <laughs> all right. <laughs> That's where my... <laughs> wow, Michelle's popping up everywhere. All right, one more announcement. Oh, if you're an experienced developer or project manager looking for a change of pace, consider working with me and my world-class team at AppV Next, building the next generation Internet of Things and NUI apps. Are you in? Check out appvnext.com and go ahead and send me a resume. Having a good time with that one. Awesome. Data clumps. Yeah. So, Carl, there's there's a couple things I want to make sure we touch on, and I know we're probably running out of time on the show. Go right ahead. Uh, so, let me let me just blast through these few things that, that I think were really cool that we talked about and learned about as we did the course. And then, you know, we'll let you guys all jump in on that. But, you know, one of the key points that we, we found out about as we went through it was that your design can evolve very easily with DDD, and it, and it should. And we actually had a, a scenario where we kind of started down the path and our initial design um, was going to have this appointment object be kind of like the center of things. And then we learned as we were modeling things that that wouldn't work. And so we were able to revise our design and, and introduce this schedule object um, that became the aggregate route for mm. the system. And and that was that was pretty cool. And I think it, we did a decent job of, of conveying that. Uh, excitement and learning into the course itself so that the student is kind of brought along on that path and, and that learning that, that we had as we built the application. 
Well, that's the- and that it's okay to go through that. Like, it's not like, oh, no, we did it wrong. We just wasted all this time. Right. It's really part of the process. Because you're always, you're always hitting those aha moments where, oh, geez, you know, if I could do this better. Now I have to refactor. So, yeah, I had that same uh, level of anxiety when I was uh, doing uh, uh, DNR TV with John Paul Boudou. And he did three episodes where he just got deeper and deeper and deeper into a hole. You know, and then the whole time I'm like, oh, now we can do this. But he's like, nope, just bear with me. We're going to do it wrong first. And so we went three episodes and never, never nice. finished, actually. So I never actually got the benefit of, uh, of seeing how it worked out. <laughs> it was really bad. You know, one of the practices that I have followed for a long time as an architect is start with a really bad design. Yeah. Because then you have this exemplar of like, let's not go there. Mm-hmm. And and for me, mostly it's about architects, architecture that won't scale, architecture that is that is very fragile. Like if we make any change, the whole system's going to resonate with that change. So right. it's like take your bad example and put it on the wall, and then you can start. You have some basis for working on a better approach. All right, Steve, what's next on your list? All right, so another thing that I thought uh, was really cool in our course that we talked about was repositories, and I mentioned that because they're they're pretty common right now. There's even people writing blog posts now saying it's repository and anti-pattern because they've become so popular. Um, I think there are a lot of nuances in how you implement repositories and ways that you can uh, achieve some of the goals of domain-driven design by how you implement them. For instance, in DDD, uh, when you have an aggregate, you shouldn't be allowed to change uh, a child in that aggregate. You should only be able to change the aggregate as a whole. And you can enforce that if you build your repositories correctly. And that was something that I thought was an important lesson. And, and most real systems I see that don't follow DDD basically just let you take any object that, that it maps to a table and have a repository for it. And that doesn't give you the advantages of using aggregates. Mm-hmm. Again, common sense. It's stuff you know. It's just about getting it organized in a way that it makes it consistent. And I think you're hinting at something here a couple times, Steve, that how many times do we go through this domain process and discover issues with the business in a lack of definition or a lack of approach? Oh, definitely. The conversations with the customer, a lot of the time you learn things about the business, of course, but a lot of times the customer learns things about their own business because they have to explain it to you. Or maybe you just are having such an objective perspective on things that you say, hey, so it's like that? Oh, I never thought of it like that before. Mm-hmm. It's one of the fun parts of being an outsider, like coming in as a consultant or anything like that, is you don't know enough to know you're pointing at elephants. <laughs> right. right? You, sort of, you sort of walk <laughs> around the business going, you guys know this is an elephant, right? And and is the reaction too, you know, the reaction, which is usually silence or, or just, and then they look around at each other and you're like, what? Did I say something? Fu- what? <laughs> you, you hit a nerve and yeah. you, know, you don't even here. know it. I didn't know. <laughs> uh, sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but you didn't know that. Because I'm pretty sure. What do you mean the emperor is naked? Yeah. I, I want to back up to the repository for a minute because, you know, being uh, somebody who talks a lot about entity framework, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing this a lot too. Like, you know, don't use repositories with ORMs, things like that, statements like that. Uh, because, you know, an ORM 
already is a repository. So one of the uh, one of the issues I think also is just the fact that it's yet another one of those overloaded terms. Mm. So we think, you know, we kind of think of that our our kind of encapsulation of interacting, you know, our code that gets the data back and forth from the database or however it's persisted. And we just think of that as a repository, whether or not it literally is using the repository pattern, right? Sure. So, so you know, I, I made a um, little joke on Twitter the other day about, all right, I'm just going to call it the manager again. Oh, God, did that freak people out. <laughs> you can't use that uh-huh. term. It's horrible. Like, it doesn't matter yeah. sometimes right? what we're calling it. It really doesn't. I mean, it, it does matter, but there's, you know, this this other, at a, at different levels, it matters and doesn't matter. <laughs> I don't want to say it does, it just doesn't matter right. at all. You know, we're getting back to that ubiquitous language, right? Yeah, it's right. more important to be accurate and to understand. Definitely. The last thing I wanted to touch on is, you know, in most real world applications that, that I see and clients that I work with, they don't necessarily have the luxury of having one database per application or per bounded context. And that's really the ideal. If you're truly going to be domain driven, you don't want to use the database as your integration point. But since we know that a lot of the times you're going to have to live with that and you're not going to have the luxury of having your own database, another thing that we made sure to touch on is how you can use a shared database and still get the benefits of DDD and how you can even use a combination approach of some parts of your application or some applications in your system are complex enough to merit using DDD, but others are really just CRUD. And both could point to the same database, but use different means of getting to and from the data. Absolutely. This And this is mostly a bit about figuring out a threshold of complexity, like where is the line here? How how complicated is this? Exactly. Again, it comes down to, do we need the, the tool that DDD provides us uh, in this particular scenario or not? And there's some guidance for helping you make those kind of decisions. A lot, you know, part of it is, um, do you have complex rules that you have to deal with? Right. And, and, uh, and interestingly, as Steve and I were working out ideas for what domain we would use for a sample application, we, you know, went down a few paths where we're like, well, you know, there's really, in, if we answer this question and answer that question, kind of like as we would simplify things a little bit, suddenly the complexity disappeared. Like, yeah, that's, you know, that should be good for a crud, yeah. right? As you kind of sort things out. And then other places, um, it became apparent that it really was complex enough to justify. Yeah, coming up with a decent using DDD. a decent sample for our course was was a real challenge because uh, we needed something that was small enough that it would serve as a demo that a student could understand readily, but complex enough to merit using DDD. Yeah, that's an interesting balance, and it's all about a good demo. If everything goes perfectly, it's really not that good a demo. This has got to be about tolerating <laughs> problems. And and ergo, you know, coming up with uh, reshaping our aggregate route as we went through the process and then doing a refactoring, you know, like we're adding some things at the end, just showing like the, um, some of the benefit, how we're gaining some of the benefits when we wanted to add a new feature. But at the same time, uh, we had to do some refactoring that was highlighted by tests that we had in place and just how it all came together. 
Yeah, the last module basically kind of shows like, and here's why we use DDD, because now the customer wants this and we can add it and it doesn't require us to break everything that we'd already built. And uh, we used uh, domain events for that um, to a large extent as a means of decoupling different applications within the same system. Uh, and I think that was one of the cooler parts too, uh, especially from the UI layer. Uh, this, this course isn't about SignalR or ASP.NET MVC or JavaScript, but we used some of those tools, some of those technologies to demonstrate the benefits of, of using DDD and domain events so that these systems could evolve independently of one another. Uh, and when something happens in one application, it immediately fires off an event to the other that lets it get updated and, and visualize that update in the user interface instantly. And I thought that turned out really cool for us. Yeah. And also, of course, after we've got the whole domain worked out and it is time to implement some persistence, guess what we use for our data persistence? Hmm. Hmm. ADO? <laughs> <laughs> DAO. Text files. Minute, RDO. <laughs> Text files. Yeah. Yeah. So we did it. We did it with Entity Framework because the idea is one of the things I've been working on is, you know, if the whole idea is we'll work the domain out and then we're going to add the data persistence on after kind of after the fact, because that's not what our domain is about. Um, how can I know or trust that I'll be able to implement all of the things that are supposed, you know, that I can make the data persistence work mm. the way we need I'm it a little, to work, that everything works out. I'm a little disappointed, Julie. I thought you were going to say Fox Pro. <laughs> oh, gosh. Not that I haven't had to touch Fox Pro in the last six months oh, a boy. few times. Fox Pro 2.6, oh, but man. no. Yeah. Yeah. When it, uh, yeah. So let's, let's talk about uh, yeah. technical debt. Right. <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about technical debt now. You owe Anyway, the so following. it was nice. It was nice to know to be you know to be able to say you know what I'm not going to worry about the persistence while I'm working on the domain because I'm good at entity framework and I know that when it comes time to implement this stuff in the back end I can basically handle whatever the domain's throwing sure. at me and and make it work. Guys, we are just about out of time. So uh thanks very much. This has been a great talk. And I can't wait to watch your video. Oh good. Great. What's the name of it again? Of the plural site course? It's Domain Driven Design Fundamentals. Awesome. And I've already got a, we've got a bit.ly for it, which is all capital letters, PS for plural site, dash DDD, all caps. Great. All right, guys, good luck with that. And Thanks. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band.
de eso. 